All right, last week we talked about frequency and we're going to continue that on today. Uh, the term frequency is, of course, uh, has a couple of different definitions, one of which is the frequency in which an event happens, the frequency in which your best friend texts you throughout the day, that's a frequency. Uh, but a frequency is also like a sound wave. Uh, uh, the sound actually creates waves, that's what sound basically is, and, and a low-pitched sound would have a wave that would be very gentle, so to speak, whereas a high-pitched sound would have a wave that would be very tight-knit like that. And so when we're talking about frequency as it relates to the Bible, we're really talking about God speaking to us. What is the frequency that he uses? What is the sound wave and what is the sound wave that reverberates us, that speaks to us, that moves us? I think it was Micah Lanham, we were talking about this a week or so ago, and, and he mentioned about the antenna and that the, the sound waves that flow you know, through the air, it, it reverberates within an antenna. And that was instrumental. It was an instrumental idea and understanding about his conversion to Christ. And I thought, man, that's powerful God speaks to us in a frequency that we can grasp. And that frequency is a vibration, if you will. And it is supposed to cause us to be changed. It causes us to be altered. And that's the reason why God speaks to us. Because he wants the best for us and he knows that sin is from Adam straight down through all have sinned. And sin is that, that tension, that barrier, that disobedience that causes us and God to, to have a problem. You ever had a problem in a relationship with your spouse? Yeah. Well, sin causes us to have a problem in our relationship with God. And God speaks to us in order for us to be changed. And he forgives us of our sin he comes into our life, and then he leads us and guides us. And all through life, he's, he's reverberating. He's giving us frequency. He's giving us his word to, to change the course of our life, to line up with his purpose and will for our lives. And so all through our lives, we should have an ear to hear. Jesus said, have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the church. And so we need to have an ear to hear. But he speaks to us in a lot of different ways. Last week, we talked about two different ways, one of which was nature. The psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. They don't have a voice, and yet they speak. They don't have words, but yet their words are clear. And so nature speaks to us about God's existence, his sovereignty, his faithfulness. Every 24 hours, the sun rises. Every 24 hours, it goes down. It's 25 hours during daylight savings time, but that's just once or twice a year. Every day, there's the law of seed time and harvest, the faithfulness of the, the consistency of God. So that's what nature speaks to us. And last week, we also talked about miracles are one way that God speaks to us. I, I would say that the, with apart from two specific miracles, miracles are maybe the least common denominator in which God speaks to us, but it is certainly a way God speaks to us. The two predominant miracles are the virgin birth and the resurrection. Those are instrumental and speak to us about God's um, uh, showing us that Christ is the Messiah, his chosen uh, means for our salvation. Uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees of his day who wanted him to say plainly, are you the Christ? And he said, I have been telling you. 
but you don't believe. He said, I've been doing all these miracles in my Father's name, and they testify about who I am, but you, you don't believe. So, in other words, I think he was basically saying, it doesn't really matter what I do. You don't believe. Have you, do you know anybody like that, maybe in your circle, maybe in your family? It, it, I mean, God, it doesn't matter what God does, they don't believe. So miracles is a way that God speaks to us, but it perhaps is the least of the ways. But today, let's go into um, a couple of other ways in which God speaks to us, and I certainly don't want to try and limit God or to try and convey to you that there's only four ways that God speaks to us, certainly not. I think there's just these dominant ways in which he speaks to us. So today, we're going to look at the two that I put together, which is the Bible and prayer. We're going to combine that as one. I think these are inseparable, the Bible and prayer. God speaks to us through the Bible and through or in prayer. Those who just study the Bible and they don't really pray, they don't have this, that personal connection with God, but they study the Bible, tend to become very mean. Amen. Baby agrees. Yeah, they just have a, they have a Bible verse for everybody and they just pop you on the head with the Bible. You know, the Bible says... Bible says the Bible says because they have no relationship with God of softness or gentleness or direction or correction it's all just the word the word the Bible the Bible the Bible but those who are just over here in prayer and they don't really study the Bible that's that's for whoever I'm just going to pray and the Holy Spirit's going to lead me and tell me what everything I'm supposed to do those people generally float off into a theology that is not biblical and, and not godly and they usually fly off somewhere. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just kind of float off somewhere into the ether because they're not grounded. The Word of God grounds us. So these two I'm putting together, the Word and prayer. It's kind of a long introduction. Sorry for that. We'll get the rest of this going pretty quickly. The Word and prayer. The Bible um, is definitely proof that God wants us to have a Word. He wants us to have direction. That's not just floating around, but it's concrete. It's actually today in print. And he wants us to have that word. So that's from God's perspective. But from our perspective, it's obvious that we as people want a word. That's why there's Instagram. Social media. Because we want a word. It helps if there's a picture attached to it, but we want a word. We want to, to have an inspirational slogan on the wall where we work because we want to read that every once in a while. We want that word. We desire a word because God gave us a word. But we got to make sure that we're getting God's word and not just some flippant statement that has been made. It might be encouraging for a moment. The Bible says in, in Matthew 4, Jesus said this, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 says this about the Word. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's why when you and I, if by chance we are straying away from God and we're just kind of starting to do more of our own thing instead of His thing, we're resistant to read the Word of God because the Word of God judges our heart and our minds and the thoughts and intentions that we have. 
And so all of a sudden, our, our, our waywardness is then confronted with the word of God that says, you're not supposed to be doing that, and we, we resist that. But if we'd say, wait a minute, I constantly need the word of God to keep me from going wrong, to keep me from going astray, then the word of God keeps us on that path of righteousness. How can we know anything about God and life without the word of God. The word of God tells us why we're here. Ephesians 2 and 10 says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We don't do good works so that we can be in Christ. We are in Christ and therefore we get to do good works. We get to be good and do good because we're in Christ and that's the reason why Christ uh, has saved us. In Psalm 119, 105 to 109, it gives us clear direction. The word of God directs us in life. Here's what David wrote in Psalm 119. He said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word accept lord the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws though i constantly take my life in my hands i will not forget your laws again and again and again david is saying it's the word of god it's the law of god it's the word of god it's the law that he's given us in print the law the written word of god he says, I'm going to meditate on it. It's going to illuminate my path and the direction I should go. And I'm going to constantly depend on God's word to lead and guide my life. But if we take the word only, we can become very mean and legalistic. But we've got to add to that prayer. We've got to balance that out with that personal relationship that is a language that you speak with God, that he hears and understands your language, your heart language, and you understand his. In Matthew uh, verse, uh, chapter 6 and verse 9, we see the Lord's Prayer. I know this is familiar with you, so I'm just going to make a few comments about this. But Jesus starts this off, and he says, this then is how you should pray. I love the fact that he said that before the Lord's Prayer. He just said, this is how you're supposed to pray. I don't think we need to go into the Greek and go, I wonder what Jesus meant by that. I think, we, I think he was just trying to teach us how to pray. Then we look at this and we go, okay, Jesus is giving this, if you want to call it an outline or directional or whatever, it's, but he's saying this is how you should pray. So let's just go through that. Our Father in heaven. First off, there's relationship and there's place. God's in heaven was showing he is sovereign over all. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or honored is your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. We're acknowledging there is a kingdom. We see all the kingdoms of this earth. We have kingdoms right now fighting each other. There's plenty of kingdoms on the earth, but there's also a kingdom of God. And we're saying we're recognizing that. And that kingdom of God, aren't you thankful that it permeates throughout every kingdom of this earth? It is more dominant, more powerful, more authoritative than any other kingdom on this earth. I know that right now Israel and the Palestinians, specifically Hamas, are all, they're in a war. I mean, there's no other way to describe that. There's a war. And I know that that affects our understanding of biblical prophecy and the end times. 
This has been a war that's been going on for thousands of years. And it's going to continue until Christ returns. We understand that. So it has a lot of people up in arms right now. But we must remind ourselves, and we find this in the Lord's Prayer, that God's kingdom is above Israel, and God's kingdom is above the Palestinians and Hamas, and it's above America, and it's above Washington. Washington is not the solution to our problems. Washington, as President Reagan said, is the problem. Christ's kingdom is above it all. And so even as we see all the turmoil and the fighting and the wars and even our own country, in my opinion, from my estimation, going downhill morally, we have people that can't even figure out if they're a boy or a girl. That's just weird. But Christ is the answer. Christ is the answer. So we're not going to point our finger and say, that's bad, that's wrong. Yes, it is, but Christ is the answer. And so if a person's having a struggle figuring out whether they're a boy or girl, Christ is the answer. And our job is to be kind and lead them to Christ. Not to judge, and not to put them down, but to lead them to Christ. If somebody's having a problem with Israel and Palestinians, Christ is the answer. Because his kingdom is above all. It says, give us today our daily bread. God, you know how to meet my needs every day. Forgive us of our debts. Well, we got to first admit that we have debts or trespasses or sin. And he says, forgive forgive us, please forgive us as we forgive our debtors, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Again, it's a constant reminder. If I'm holding a grudge against someone else, I'm mad at somebody else for what they did to me or did to somebody else. Then not only do I have a problem with a person, I have a problem with God because I'm not forgiving, though I have been forgiven. So it's that constant reminder that keeps us from going to the left or to the right, but keeps us following Christ. He said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He said, this is how I want you to pray. This is the model in which I want you to pray. Well, let's move on then to the the fourth and final way that I'm, I'm saying are dominant ways in which God speaks to us, and that is the gifts of the Spirit. All of the gifts are God's way of speaking to us of his grace. The grace that God gives to to one to be a servant, to one to be a leader, to one to be an administrator, to one to have a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or a word of prophecy or the, the tongues and interpretation and all of the gifts of the Spirit, all of them are God's way of speaking to us about his grace and their means by which we are encouraged and lifted up And God speaks to us about not living in depression, but living with encouragement and building us up. That's God's will and plan for our life. They are for edification. They're for building up. After you eat a a really great meal, don't you just feel like, yeah, that was good. I feel good, you know? I'm with good company. Stomach's full of good food. Yeah. That's what the gifts of the Spirit are for. Therefore, to edify us. And therefore, like, yes, God's real, God's alive, God's here, God knows, God sees what's happening. I won't go into detail, but Lisa and I are, are just uh, focused on something in our relationship. And I got a phone call from a friend down in Florida who's kind of was kind of helped mentor us when we were very young, when we lived in Florida. And, and she's just a phenomenal Christian. And her husband died a couple years ago. And She's just great. 
but she just gave me a word that I was like, God sees me, God hears me, and God's answering. And it was just awesome. It was, it's like eating that great meal. You're going like, we're going to be okay. It was awesome. Well, that's what the gifts of the Spirit are all about. But today, just for in this moment, just maybe for the sake of time, this isn't a, a, a sermon on the gifts of the Spirit, except maybe one, and that would be the gift of prophecy. In 1 Corinthians 14, 1, remember what 1 Corinthians 13 is, right? The love chapter, you know, love is patient, love is kind. If I t- speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, okay. So 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, we call it. The very next verse, 1 Corinthians 14, 1, is this bridge to what the next thing the Holy Spirit is instructing the Apostle Paul to say. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, follow the way of love and eager desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. He says, okay, follow the way of love. Everything that the Holy Spirit has just instructed, follow that. If love is patient, follow patience. If love is kind, follow kind. Just follow the way of love. He said, but then eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Now, on the one hand, the Bible says in Romans and in in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Holy Spirit assigns gifts. He gives gifts to each member of the body of Christ as he sees fit. If we're not careful, we'll just kind of sit back and go, hey, whatever God gives me, that's what I'm going to do. That's good, but it's incomplete. Here he says, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. So we can't just sit back and go, hey, you know, God wants me to do something. He'll... It'll just zap me or something. I don't know what, it, but I'm just going to sit here until something happens. No, we eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. We eagerly go after them. We eagerly try to understand and try to, to move within those gifts to say, God, I, I don't even know, but I think maybe you're, you're telling me to go give a word of encouragement to somebody and just tell them they're doing an awesome job. But that's so uncomfortable for me. God says, I'm, come on, that's a gift of the Spirit. Go for it. And he says, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, but especially prophecy. Now, in, the, in that word prophecy, it's a very potent word in, uh, in Christianity because we look at the Old Testament and what is the prophecy? It's all about, okay, in 14 years, this is going to happen, or in 1,400 years, this is going to happen, or the prophet's giving a word of prophecy that he doesn't even know when it's going to happen. But it's always a foretelling of the future. It's a foretelling of the future. It's like, you know, these things are going to happen. That's going to happen. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. And we're like, oh, wow, that's like, whoa. But there's a change in the word prophecy and the meaning of it when we get to the New Testament. It, is, it still incorporates a foretelling of the future, but the word prophecy is used in a larger sense. Now, that's why I appreciate the fact of those who love the Greek language and love Jesus and love the Bible. As they study the Greek language to find out what are the nuances of how each one of these words is used. Let me use the illustration here. Okay, so if I were to tell you, um, after I mow the grass, I like to have a cold one. Would you think, according to the way the English language is used today in America, that I'm, I'm going to have a beer? Okay, so, what, so why do you think that? Don't answer, it's just obvious. But Because that's the way we use that terminology. A cold one is not, you could mention, you could be thinking about a Coca-Cola. You could. But the language lends to believe 
It's a beer. Okay. In the Greek language, which is vast, there are Greek words that were, that were used in a particular way during a particular season of time. Let me ask you a question. 200 years ago, if somebody said, I'm going to have a cold one, they'd be like, what are you talking about? 200 years from now or less, if somebody were to say, I'm going to have a cold one, they'd be like, but right now, that's the terminology. So in the Greek language, we, we want to, in these verses, we want to go back to the Greek and go, okay, how were these words used then? What was the meaning? What was the purpose? What was the emphasis? And on this, 1 Corinthians 14.1, the Greek word for prophecy means to teach, refute, reprove, admonish, and comfort. So it doesn't negate the foretelling of the future, but it brings on new nuances. It brings on new meaning. And so a word of prophecy can be just boldly proclaiming the word of God. It can be boldly encouraging, boldly admonishing, boldly correcting. A prophetic word is a word that, that brings encouragement and uplifts us, even if it's a word of correction, because correction should encourage us. And so here it's a, it becomes a much broader term in the New Testament, especially as it relates to the gifts of the Spirit. So in, in we see an example of this prophecy of foretelling the future in Mark chapter 14 where uh, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, where, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? And this is Jesus' response. He said, I want you to go into Jerusalem. You're going to be met by a man who's carrying a water jug. Follow him. When he enters the house, go to the owner of the house and ask him, where do you want the master to prepare the Passover? He's going to lead you to an upper room, fully furnished, Prepare the Passover there. Now, that's a prophecy. And the Bible says it happened just that way. Right? It happened just that way. Well, let's look at another prophecy here in the book of Acts. You have your Bibles, Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. And we're going to read this. Acts number 21 so Luke is the author, the Holy Spirit's the author of the book of Luke, but Luke actually did the writing. And it's, a, it is a, it's like a documentary. It's just recording the things that happened. Not everything, obviously, but he's recording what God wanted him to record. And this is where Paul and Luke and others are doing some traveling. Let's read, okay? So we're in verse number um, 8. Acts 21.8, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven, that means one of the seven deacons that were selected in Acts chapter 6. Verse 9 says he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I just find that one of the most interesting verses in the Bible. It's just cool. He's a Philip, he's one of the uh, seven deacons, he was an evangelist, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I just think it's cool. Verse 10, after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, that's a, that's a prophecy with some specificity to it. 
Um, was it, it wasn't really the timing of it. It wasn't saying next week or next month or next year, but he said, this is what'll happen. So there's a group of people. Paul is there. Luke is there. There's a group of people, and Agabus does this. He gets the belt, ties his hands and feet. This is what's going to happen. There's four parts to that, that prophecy. The Jews are going to do this in Jerusalem to this person. Okay. Look at what happens next, though. Verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So here the people's interpretation of the prophecy is what? Paul, great news. Agabus just gave us a great prophecy. He's warning you, don't go to Jerusalem. It's obvious, Paul. That's a word of God. God's trying to speak to you. Don't go to Jerusalem because if you do, you're going to be bound hand and foot. Oh, thank you, Lord, for giving Paul warning. Let's read the next verse. When Paul answered, then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul did not take the prophecy as, Hey, buddy, don't go to Jerusalem. He took the prophecy as, Well, God's warning me. God's telling me ahead of time what's going to happen so that when it happens, I'm not going to freak out and get mad at God. Not that anyone in this room has ever done that. God gave a word of prophecy through the guy named Agabus. The word of prophecy was interpreted in different ways. The group said, great, Paul, God's warning you don't go. Paul says, I'm willing to be bound. I'm willing to die for the sake of the gospel. The next verse. When Paul would not be dissuaded or persuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. I find it interesting what didn't happen. I find it interesting that no one said, I doubt the prophecy. I doubt, I doubt Agabus was really praying. He just had some pizza last night and he's in a weird mood. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that was a word from God. Nobody said that. Everybody went, this, is a, this is a prophecy. Okay, what, what does it mean? And there was a confusion about what it meant and how to interpret it. And finally, they just came to the, to the realization, the Lord's will be done. The group thought, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul's like, I'll go to Jerusalem. I don't care. I'm gonna, God's called me to preach. God's called me to win the lost. God's called me to present the gospel to the Gentiles. If I got chains, I'll present the gospel. If I don't have chains, I'm going to present the gospel. You see, when God gives a word of prophecy, in this case, it was a prophetic word about what was going to happen in the future. What does that do for us? Even if we don't fully understand it, what does it do for us? It causes us to kind of relax and go, okay, God sees me, God knows me, and God is warning me, God's telling me, God's projecting for me. And so when it happens, I'm not gonna freak out and I'm not gonna blame God. Paul could not go, God, I'm in Jerusalem preaching the gospel and now I'm in chains, what's going on? God would say, I warned you. And that's exactly why Paul didn't freak out. And exactly what happened, what was prophesied happened. You can keep reading it later this afternoon. It's exactly what happened. But when it happened, Paul was not bewildered like, oh man, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe I'm suffering like that. I can't, are you kidding me? There was no need for that because Paul had been warned. The word 
a prophecy that God wants to give the church today is much the same way. It's encouraging, it's uplifting, it can be corrective, it can be directive, but it should always bring an assurance to us that God sees us, he knows where we're at, and he's giving us what we need so that when it happens, we're not gonna freak out. See, when God warns you, then you don't freak out when it happens. And here's some things that God's warned us about. Mike, you would come up, please, and just play for a moment. Here's some things that God has warned us. We know from prophecy that Christ is going to return again. Amen? We know that. And man, I'm just like, come Lord Jesus. We also know there's going to be a great tribulation. I'm thankful in my theology, I ain't going to be here. Hallelujah. We also know from prophecy that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We know from prophecy that anyone's name that's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life is not going to go to heaven. We know from prophecy there is a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth will be passed away at that time. And so we know from prophecy, we know from what God has told us what some things that are going to happen. Jesus said, there, you're going to be persecuted. So it shouldn't surprise us when we are. Jesus also said, you're gonna be blessed. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we are. And we've got both ends of that perspective. We're going to be blessed and persecuted. We're going to be abandoned, but not forsaken. We're going to be pressed down. We're not going to be crushed. That's the the word that God's given us. And so we constantly need the right now and here word. And that's how God speaks to us in the moment at which we are at. All prophecy must line up with this written word. If somebody says they've got a word of prophecy and it doesn't line up here, don't follow it. This is the foundation. But we cannot uh, uh, try to to say, oh, I I don't want to hear anything like that. God says, I've given this as a gift to the body of Christ. We need it because that's one of the main ways God speaks to us in the day in which we're at. Amen.